Hi, Kayla. Hi. Sorry oh, for the confusion. <laughs> sorry. Anger, yeah, anger can be confusing the first time. Damien and I had like a lot of trouble on it when we first used it. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> it's uh, thank you so much for being on here. It's it's amazing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. So, uh, Kayla, this is my uh, best friend, uh, Damien. Uh, so, uh, and Damien, this is Kayla. Hey Damien, nice to meet you over the interweb. <laughs> so welcome and uh, hello everyone and welcome to episode three of Our Voices Conversations of Disability. Uh, it feels really great to be back here and hope everyone is taking good care of themselves in the third year of the COVID pandemic. Um, Damien and I are really looking forward to this new episode as we are joined by a very wonderful guest from Guelph, Ontario, and she is Kayla Bess. Kayla identifies herself as disabled and is currently a public education coordinator for Tango Art Plus Disability and runs the social media accounts for Bodies in Translation within Project Revision, the Center for Art and Social Justice. One of her areas of interest focuses on her research of re relaxed performance spaces in the arts. We are absolutely thrilled and delighted to have her join us in the discussion on making space for disability art so grab a cozy spot and beverage and enjoy the show. So Kayla, welcome. Um, before we move on to the questions, uh, could you tell us a bit about who you are and uh, what you do in your professional work? For sure, yeah. Um, thank you for that introduction. I'm actually, I'm not currently with Bodies in Translation anymore. I was for a few years, but um, not, not formally anymore. So yeah, you've got that right. I'm with Tangled Art Plus Disability. Um, we are a disability-led um, art gallery and nonprofit in Toronto. Um, and yeah, I'm their public education coordinator. So do a lot of uh, communications work around disability arts and helping to make that accessible to as many people as possible. Um, I also co-host and co-produce a podcast called Crip Times, um, so that's been a lot of fun. And yeah, as you noted, um, one of my main areas of research is in relaxed performance and kind of broadening um, its applications beyond its theater origins. So. Um, yeah, that's me. My background's in English literature, actually. So I was doing like literary disability studies um, when I was in grad school. So continue to have an interest in all things literature and film as it relates to disability as well. Wow. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, hope everyone will, will learn so much from you today in this episode. Um, so we got some really great questions that I will be asking and it's going to be really fun. So. Um, so the first question we'll be starting off is, in relation to the ways we experience the world as a disabled person, how would you define disability art and why is it important to acknowledge this culture? For sure. I mean, what a huge question, right? It's, it's almost impossible to pin it down as one individual person, but I can take a stab. Um, so disability art is art that's made by and often for disabled people. Um, it might be about the lived or embodied experience of disability in some way, or it might not. Um, it often has a political or social justice aim. And something we like to clarify a lot when we talk to folks at Tangled is that um, it's importantly distinct from something like 
art therapy because it's not about you know trying to fix disability or um, necessarily have a therapeutic aim um, but to just you know interrogate the ways that disabled people can bring creativity especially around creative ways to make art accessible um, so yeah it's a really like growing diverse field I would say and the second part of your question why is it important to acknowledge this culture um, I mean disabled people are the largest minority group in the world right so the less that we can the less that we essentialize the disabled experience the better you know so the more people who have opportunities to share their talents with the world and their experiences then i think um the greater like understanding and empathy there could be hopefully on the other end of that wow wow excellent question yeah so we kind of like uh, talked about um when we first met we had a really great uh, meet at uh, the art gallery so that was a really great response into the the growing movement of disability art. So thank you, Kayla. Uh, so now, uh, number two. So disability art continues to evolve as a platform that scholars, activists, and artists use to craft socio-political change. So from your perspective, how do disabled artists utilize disability art against stereotypical or like ableist ideas of disability? Mm, that's a good question. I think disabled artists are so creative, often out of necessity, right? Because the traditional art world hasn't been accessible to us um, for so long. And how do disabled artists utilize disability art? I mean, yeah, resisting stereotype is, I would say, one major theme that I've seen, um, especially at the work we do, with the work we do at Tangles, um, and the ways that they resist stereotype, I think, is just drawing from, you know, the individual experience in the world, um, and not sort of pandering to what an abled audience might expect. Um, and doing things on their own terms, you know? So whether that's um, the integration of deaf culture um, in a space. And so having ASL curatorial statements, for example, um, that makes visible the difference of disability and, um, you know, can, can help to, with like cultural exposure, I think, for people, um, disabled or not. I'm thinking of artists like Shannon Finnegan, who um, do, Shannon does really incredible work that explicitly calls out the ableism within our structures. So um, for example, they have these benches that they've made to go in gallery spaces that say things like, this exhibit has asked me to stand for too long, sit if you agree. Um, and so just, just making really transparent like the ableism within the institutions while at the same time providing, for example, a place to sit. Um, so that, that dual impact of sort of the social commentary and the material change uh, in one within disability art is something that I think is really cool um, and can wow. help 
rage against stereotypes. Yeah. No, I, that that's a really great. Um, I also feel it's also kind of like a resistance to um to against ableism, knowing that with mainstream galleries, it's may not always be accessible. But like, I remember uh, you did like a, a panel talk for the supporting art audiences with disabilities and talked about with access um, access needs. <laughs> so, um, do you think that there should be like um, trust between the organizations, like the building and the buildings, or and disabled artists, like like kind of like working around access? Absolutely, yeah. That's integral to everything we do at Tangled, um, and asking about everybody's access needs early and often, right? Because I think there is okay to go back to stereotype. There's perhaps a stereotype um, in some abled institutions that it's only disabled people who have access needs or who need you know to have special needs that term that i would never use um but really everyone has access needs right we just don't call it that um one example i've given before that i really like is to say you know a car is a mobility device for many people they just don't see it that way you know it's it's wheels to help you move from one place to another um, some institutions I've seen also use um, a document they might call like an access rider. So if you think of how celebrities have, you know, a rider if they're going on tour or something of things that they need to be comfortable in the space, um, we can invite access riders to encourage people to let us know what they need to do their work comfortably um so yeah the aesthetics of access um are something that i'm i'm continuing to learn about all the time and um making room to desire that and not see it as like a burden but something that we're like excited to have uh, every step of the way wow well thank you so much for that response incredible yeah, actually, I, I really enjoyed your uh, talk uh, a couple of weeks ago. So oh, back thank in you. February, yeah, I was there with uh, moderated by Cyrus. So that's really nice. Yeah, Cyrus Marcus Ware, such a wonderful person. Like she, like like he's like amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, we got another great question, and um, I believe you're familiar with this term. So to quote disability studies scholar Kelly Fritch, to crip is to open up with desire for which the ways that disability disrupts um would you mind like uh, articulate uh the meaning behind this important uh, message and how is this utilized in the work of the disability arts sector sure um i mean i don't want to speak for kelly fritch but i really love the framing of to crip as a verb um so for anyone who might not be as familiar, um, CRIP is a term that some disabled people have chosen to reclaim as an identity, something that historically has been used as a slur, um, and reclaim it as a point of pride and political activism generally. Um, and so when we ask ourselves how we can CRIP our daily lives, or when I ask myself at least, um, it really is just a matter of being like, yeah, what would agitate like more broadly? Like, how can you marry um, personal access needs and relationship to disability? Um, 
with that broader like political move towards greater disability justice so for me it's about bringing those things together and yeah like kelly says um with this desire for disability and difference right um i don't know i feel like i'm, I'm rambling now but um i just i really like i really like to frame crip as a verb because it illustrates it as an action that's ongoing and it's never done right so um something else we talk about at tangle is access not being this like checklist that you can work your way through and then you're done and you don't have to think about access anymore right it's something that's continually happening um so i really appreciate that framing from kelly fritch and how is it utilized in the work of the disability art movement i mean i think we've touched on this in this conversation already um you know, disability art is making so clear those embodied needs of artists and not trying to hide them um, or, you know, see them as something inconvenient or expensive, um, but rather saying like, I'm glad you're here. What do you need? Yeah. Thank you, Kayla. That, that was amaz amazing. Damien, what do you think? Um, I actually thought that that was very, um, it's actually very educational, actually. I've never really understood what crip, like, means, hmm. um, because I've never heard of that term. Um, I think I've heard of it as, like, a, a slur, yeah, it's, like, like, crippled, like, crippled thing, like, I've seen that word, um, used before, but I've never heard it in that kind of way, so it's very interesting. Oh, that makes me happy. Is there anything that was unclear about that, Damien? Because if, if you have questions, you know, listeners probably do as well. Like Ian McIntyre, for yeah, example. Ian McIntyre, for example, from West Credit or High School. Um, he was at the Living Arts Center. His art was displayed, and some people bought his art as well. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just amazing that people with disabilities can do pretty much anything, and they don't need to like they don't let their disability stop them from pursuing things, and they don't 
like see it as like an obstacle blocking them from doing something that they love because like anyone can do it and I'm glad that there's places like Tangled that let people with disabilities showcase their unique power and their like abilities and their yeah thanks thanks for that incredible so yeah so uh number four which is um gonna be very interesting so the cripping the arts symposium was held back in 2019 to present how disability art shifts the way of understanding lived experience or experiences of embodiment um can you talk about the ways disability art could help transform like an accessible future it's a a two-part question Mm -hmm. And uh, the second would be, what changes would you like to see happen? Yeah, wow, Cripping the Arts, that feels like another lifetime. (laughs) Um, It was pre-COVID, and I actually, um, that was the first time I gave like a big public talk about our relaxed performance research with Dr. Carla Rice and Dr. Andrea Lamar. And... Luckily for me, that was the first day of the symposium that our talk was scheduled because I got some kind of virus um, that night and I missed the entire rest of the symposium, actually. (laughs) Um, So um, thankfully for access, that symposium was recorded and I was able to uh, engage with a bunch of the content afterwards because I was just sick in my hotel room the rest of the time. Um, so that was a bummer, but um, yeah, I, I could talk specifically about relaxed performance um, as it related to Crippy the Arts because I think the principles of relaxed performance in particular um, have the power to transform this accessible future that you're gesturing towards. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, relaxed performance originated in the UK um, in the theatre world and it was generally um, activists with autism who were pushing for these more like sensory friendly performances um, because they felt like as audience members it wasn't accessible to them a lot of the time to go to the theatre so this involved things like just the ability to not have to be still and silent the whole time. Um, So to be able to get up and leave and come back or to eat or to vocalize. Um, And then in production choices, it might mean things like, um, you know, having less intense lighting and sound cues or having a pre-show talk to let people know if there's gonna be something that could be triggering on stage or if there'd be things like strobes that could trigger um, seizures or something similar. So all of these efforts to make theater more accessible um, in the last several years in Canada have been expanded to things like, um, there was a relaxed fashion show at Ryerson X University a couple years ago well. Um, I was working on a relaxed choral performance just before the pandemic and then that never was produced because COVID happened. Um, But I think I've seen these principles of relaxed performance kind of happening even if people don't realize during the pandemic with things like, you know, remote events, um, with, you know, captioning and ASL for remote events and just the ability for people to 
consume arts and culture from the comfort of their own homes. And of course, there's, you know, a lot of complications wrapped up in that. Um, but I think that these principles of disability art, accessible art, relaxed performance, I hope they stay as, you know, we're at a point in the pandemic right now where you know, some people are feeling like it's over and um, vulnerable people especially are I would say very much not feeling that. And so I hope that um, these really creative elements of accessibility that were on display at Cripping the Arts are something that can be um, maintained, you know, in this pandemic present and future we still find ourselves in. Um, and what changes would I like to see happen? I mean, I think it's always a, a group effort the creation of accessibility always feels like a group project, you know. Um, it just involves a lot of really good listening to people who have different lived experiences than mine um, about what they need to participate in a space. So um, I want to see more deaf representation in the arts. I want to see, as someone who works in digital communications, I want to see greater digital accessibility. So things like image description um, and transcripts, like being non-negotiable all the time. Um, yeah, I just want everyone to have the access that they need, I think, in short. Yeah, and I do 100% agree. Like that access is a priority and it must always be a priority, especially with COVID and all that. And for me, like I made like this um, art-based assignment on um, how I felt about with the mask mandates. And I, mm. and I see that you've heard about like with the, the uplifting of the, the mandates. Yeah. And someone who is part of this community, I, I don't feel safe um, like not wearing a mask because I feel like for me it's respecting the dignity of disabled people's lives and yeah yeah at Tangled we put out recently on our social pages um, a graphic and we're going to have it printed in our physical space as well that says disabled people are worth protecting masking is solidarity um, really short and to the point um, because, yeah, with the mandates lifted, we want to make that abundantly clear that, you know, disabled people are always going to be around. And so, you know, if basically if people think, oh, I'm not vulnerable or I'm not around vulnerable people, chances are most of us are around vulnerable people yeah. all the time. Um, so it just, yeah, it's an act of care, I think, to keep masking. Um, I, I think it's as simple as that. Definitely, and th that thank you for that um, insightful response, Kayla. That that's actually really um, very informing. You know, that, good question. So um, number five. Uh, so like so with the recent crypt rituals and the um, previous exhibits like flourishing hidden are some examples that Tangled Art have presented in the gallery. Um, what are some of the things the public can learn from these exhibits in terms of accessibility or personal stories or narratives and disability justice? Mm, yeah. So out of the exhibitions that you named, um, I've only been with Tangled um, since like since the pandemic. So Crip Ritual um, is the only exhibit of those three you named I've had a hand in. So if you want to talk about flourishing or hidden, I would talk to maybe Sean Lee at Tangled. Um, but Crip Ritual, 
um, I think was really powerful in terms of helping people think about the role of ritual in a disability-centered way, um, and not just as, you know, something that's going to bring about some massive change, maybe. It, it might, um, but I think one learning was about these small daily rituals that disabled people use to function, to feel better, to feel grounded, to feel as part of a community. Um, and so one example I can give, uh, which I know, Andrew, I think you resonated with this piece because you were posting about it on your social media pages too, is um, Logan Quinn's piece in Perpetual yes. called These Are My Cars. Yes. And so this exhibit, I'll do some visual description for folks who aren't familiar. Um, there was a video projection of Logan uh, recording himself playing with Matchbox cars in his home on a big table. And then the table itself was physically in the gallery with a whole bunch of cars that people were able to touch and interact with as well. And this piece was about the ritual of play and the importance of play to bring joy and comfort in Logan's life um, as an adult. And Logan shares how, you know, some people think that that's um, childish or, you know, why would you need to play with cars as an adult? Um, and his response is basically, well, because I like to and because it feels good. And so that started a lot of conversations with people who visited to say, oh yeah, like, do I even have a place for play in my daily life? And should I maybe? Um, I don't know, Andrew, if you want to share about what that piece meant to you. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, on Facebook, uh, I posted like um, my action figure set of Marvel superheroes as my uh, self-care of play because um, I did mention this to um, Jack or and to you, Kayla, that um, play is something that it should never be ashamed of. That if it's something, if it's something that makes you happy, then it's what matters. Because um, personally, I've had like an experience where I said, "Oh." I had someone said, "Oh, do you play with dolls?" And I say, "No," and I just and I just don't like that because um, I really don't like how like someone like judges judges you on like what you play because you're and like another thing is my Lego uh, uh, the Lego set that I uh, have like Lego minifigures and mm. that's another self uh, that's another play that that I, that I like so like. Uh, when I was uh, took a virtual tour with Sean, uh, with especially with Logan's exhibit, it really resonated to me, knowing that I, I don't have to be ashamed about like playing with my action figures or Lego. Mm. So like, you're never too old to play with um, any sort of toy that brings you that sense of joy. So that's why I kind of like really loved that exhibit, um, especially with Logan. So yeah, that's great. I think so we all need. I think we all need to play a bit more these days. At least I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I get very distracted with Lego. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. I mean, so uh, Damien, do you have any uh, like a uh, self like like self care of play? Like, do you have like what do you play like that makes you that feel happy? But also, what really makes me feel happy is just being able 
express I like, I like expressing myself with uh, my music so like I'll sing I'll write songs I'll write music and stuff like that so that's what I like I've been hooked on for like when you said that people ask you if you play with dolls and stuff when I was a kid I played with dolls that's the truth mm-hmm. yeah. and people would be like oh why are you playing with like great example it was one of the most popular choices in 2017 until it kind of faded out well like it's still around but it's a bit faded yeah no one really replaces it so, uh, so thank you for that uh, wonderful response kayla like uh i'm like i'm really learning so much um and hoping damien has learned um oh, I learned quite a lot. Yeah. that's good <laughs> yeah thank you both so um number six so based on your own personal or professional experience uh, what is one thing you love to advocate for in the disability arts sector or the disability community and why i love this question um <laughs> so i when did this it must have it was just a few weeks into like the first covid lockdown so march 2020 and I was working from home. So many people were working from home for the first time. And I started posting on my Instagram stories, um, the ways, you know, there was so much talk, especially then about like, you know, uh, professional clothing has gone out the window and we're all just like working in our sweatpants with our pets at home on the couch or whatever. Um, And so I started using the hashtag soft office and and then I, I started sort of like theorizing it a bit more. And to me now, soft office is this like aesthetic and politic of disability justice and comfort so i would share things like um you know this is me with my heat pack at work from home or like in my bed or lighting candles like with a you know with a space heater on um like laying on the floor just like listening to this meeting and inviting others to think about the ways that they could make their workspaces more accessible to themselves because we were no longer beholden to these office environments which are like sensory nightmares for so many of us right whether it's because of fluorescent lighting or like shitty chairs (laughs) um and so it really has got me questioning like the value of professionalism in scare quotes and who it serves and what that looks like um i'm not the first person to 
you know, be thinking about these things for sure. But um, it just was a nice moment of like community formation too, to invite people to send me like, like here's my soft office today, what's yours look like? Um, and to make those investments in my own comfort, like it's absolutely ruined me for, you know, a traditional office environment. I actually don't think I could physically do that anymore. <laughs> um, and so for me, like I, that, you know, there were several purchases that, felt too extravagant i think pre-covid but now i'm like oh no that was an investment in myself and my physical comfort and my ability to like do a good job so um for me that meant getting a convertible um standing desk so it actually like i'm very small physically so it it um not only raises to stand to work but it goes extra low for sitting as well um so you know just realizing oh most tables are too tall for me and we're like hurting my body to work at them yeah um or you know i'm, I'm wearing and using right now i got like noise canceling headphones um and i use those all day every day to communicate for work yeah um so you know i think everybody's like soft office everybody's access needs of course are different um but being kind of like loud about what my own are has um i really love advocating for this idea of soft office and wow. um yeah it brings it brings me joy and it really like kind of gives people pause a lot of the time and they're like oh yeah wait like who who said we have to you know dress a certain way sit a certain way um talk a certain way to be considered professionals to be considered you know good at our job um so i try to push for that and i'm so lucky that you know at tangled that's welcome because it would be not safe to you know not perform professionalism in some ways in in certain contexts but um that's my answer. I, I love to advocate for the soft office. And it's funny because if you were to go on Instagram right now and click on that hashtag, like there's a little bit of this sort of like disability take on it that I've been talking about, but mostly it's like, I don't know, some like feminized, like, like so-called feminine colors and like, you know, expensive loungewear that influencers are trying to sell you like if they're using that hashtag so that that's kind of funny and annoying but um yeah wow yeah i've seen um yeah your uh, instagram posts on soft off soft office so it's very interesting i've it's, it's pretty it's pretty pretty new to me so it's and, and it's for for the both of us damien so uh, thank you for sharing kayla that wow it's, i'm still taking that in it's wow great so um now we uh, approach to the last question so um in what ways do you think disability art could uh continue to acknowledge voices of disabled mad deaf indigenous artists for the present and future and how does it shape our desire for an accessible friendly world Mm, another big question. Um, how can we continue recognizing the voices? I mean, number one, I think uh, disabled, mad, and deaf artists need to get paid more than they do. Yeah. Um, disabled, mad, and deaf artists are like 
notoriously underpaid for so much like groundbreaking work and theory and efforts towards accessibility that's like criminally underrecognized and underpaid. So I just hope there's like more grants, more funding, more recognition um, in, in that world. Like I think we need to just invest in disabled brilliance. Um, like that's my hope. Um, and I don't know, I'm just like, I don't, I'm one person, I can only speak for me. So I would just like to continue to, you know, have the privilege to witness and amplify um, death, mad and disabled art. Um, I love being in that kind of like producer role and having the privilege of, of being in a space to like platform people and just, you know, let people be themselves and um, let them experiment um, and let them like surprise everybody. Like I like to be, I like to have my assumptions challenged, I think. Um, wow. And in terms of... <laughs> Um, cause I don't know, you know, like I already, I'm, I'm one person, I'm one disabled person with one disabled experience. And so I just feel really lucky to get to interface with, um, this community like on a daily basis. It's, it's really enriched my life. And how does it shape our desire for an accessible, friendly world was the second part of your question. I mean, I think the more that we understand that the category of like normal, like a normal body or a normal voice, um, a normal language, like doesn't even really exist, um, then the more diversity we can hopefully have, you know, um, in the world and, and for people to see that like difference is normal and to want to meet the needs of as many people as possible. Um, because without that exposure, I think people just don't even know, people don't even know what access needs they're not meeting until they bump up against them. So, um, representation isn't everything, but I think, I think it's still really powerful. So, wow. Yeah. Incredible. Like, uh, it's important to think about rep disability representation and into the next episode, we will be talking about like how disability is represented for like in mainstream media and to examine mm -hmm. that, how like it is um, constructed in media. So I really liked your response, uh, Kayla. So th that's amazing. Um, Damien, do you have anything else uh, you would like to share? Yeah, um, it was a bit of a a bit of a journey to end up there, but it feels pretty serendipitous. So, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, my educational background, I was in the School of English and Theater Studies at the University of Guelph for my bachelor's and my master's. And 
what really sparked the thing that became my master's proposal was um, I, as a child, I was a patient at the Blurview um, Kids Rehab Center and like Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. And so several years ago now I was, um, I was there with a friend and I decided to go like check it out because the building had been, you know, renovated in the last 20 years. And they had this resource library at Blurview for um, like parents and families and patients. And I went to the section that had to do with my disability and the books and the media resources that they had there were so outdated and I took a picture of the shelf and I remember like I sent it to my mom and she was like I remember that it was still like a VHS or something of like a video they had shown kids like in the 90s and you know most of the texts that were there were written by like so-called experts, medical professionals, but generally speaking, not by people with lived experience of this condition. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So then I really like wanted to dig into disability memoir. And I was really interested in how like the stories we tell um, affect um, not only like societal bias, but potentially like medical bias and quality of life as well, right? Um, so that was like a kind of, that's what sparked a lot of my thinking. And then, yeah, I was really fortunate to work at Bodies in Translation. Um, that was my first job out of, um, out of university. And so that was my first real exposure to the broader world of disability art. And then, yeah, Tangled is like a partner with them. And it was actually through, um, and the desire to start um, a disability-centered podcast during the pandemic that, you know, Tangled was like, oh, we want to do that too. And so that was kind of the first, um, my first like foray into formally working with Tangled. Um, and so just, yeah, continuing to be really interested in um, the aesthetics of disability and the power that disabled people have when they are given the resources to um, live life on their own terms and make art on their own terms. So that's a very long answer just to say like, yeah, I guess it was like hospital resource texts and being like, and being like, mm, this isn't quite doing it for me. And then wanting to go deeper. And I will shout out to disability Twitter, like disability Twitter raised me into like the scholar activist artist person I am today without, without all of the brilliant people who are doing incredible activism work online. Like I, I would have been so lost um, for sources. Like I just, there's so much rich stuff going on there. So shout out to Disability Twitter. Wow. I never, I never knew about your history, Kayla. Like wow. So like with expert knowledge over, over on disability. So that's why, that's why for me, I believe that it's important to turn to disabled people because they have the experience they have the understanding of disability where it's like pushing them back against this that expert knowledge that is hold by professionals and really hoping that it continues to be like disrupted more turning to like narrative stories of disabled people exactly and i just have one question um 
have you uh, with the, in regards to the research on the relaxed performance spaces have you ever used like participant observation or like narrative inquiry as like a methodology yeah um the first report that we co-authored for the british council canada um that was a big part of what i was doing so i attended um like one of the training sessions at the Confederation Center in Prince Edward Island. And so I was learning these methods at the same time as people who worked there. And then afterwards I was interviewing them about their experience of um, the relaxed performance training and the capacity that they felt and the understanding or not that they felt they had to like enact it. Um, so yeah, all the relaxed performance work I've been a part of has been super relational um, and really about like relationship building between people in order to make access happen. Like it doesn't happen without um, trust and what Mia Mingus would call access intimacy. Um, so that's not my term, but I just love that term so much that um, speaks to, you know, the comfort that you feel with other people when something just clicks and you understand each other's access needs and there's like an ease there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think about relaxed performance without thinking about sort of relationship building. I think about that as like also like from my research methods course that I'm taking right now, I think about emancipatory collaboration, co-collaborations with with researchers and participants. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's kind of also did with also to think about the ethics like with relationship building. So I really mm -hmm. like what you brought up upon uh, relaxed performances. So uh, thank you so much for that input. Um, so yeah, and that uh, concludes the um, episode but I really want to thank you Kayla for uh, joining us in this wonderful discussion um, I'm actually really forever grateful to have you on here like it's it's been amazing like you were like one of um, my uh, an alternate or the a really great part, um, candidate for this uh, su subject oh, thanks so much Andrew and Damien it was really nice of you to have me on <laughs> yeah now also to say that um, like I consider you guys like family, you know, like being part of the disability community and knowing, knowing that to have really great friends, like with positivity and optimism. And so mm -hmm. like, it, it's, I'm like really like for, forever grateful. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew. All right. So, um, yeah, take care, Kayla. And, uh, we'll, um, if you need us or if you need me for any other work, uh, we'll, I will be here and or Damien will be around and yes. yeah. Great. So um, do you plan to, do you know when you plan to release the episode? Like, do you have to do well, like edits I, and stuff first? Or? Yeah, we'll have to edit, edit in, in the transcript. And so. Okay, great. And so I, I, I will um, let you know um, through email or Insta if, if um, I think email would be, would be good. Yeah. Um, because it, yeah, it would make it um, nice and accessible because transcripts is uh, a priority for the podcast series and yeah so um, thank you so much Kayla for being part of this uh, show yes thank you very much yeah my pleasure hope you have a good evening you it's too okay. you, have, you have class now right or in an hour <laughs> yeah I have a, pr uh, a presentation for um, on narrative inquiry so ah. it's <laughs> how timely <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's 15 minutes, and 
I have a really excellent group rocking it out. <laughs> nice. All right. Thank you so much, guys, and thank you, Damien. Thank you, Kayla, and uh, hope you have a, hope you guys have a great day. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you.